Trick or Treat podcast listeners, and welcome to the special Halloween episode of Booth One, celebrating culture and conversation where we take a look at the world from the most sought-after seat in the house. It's October 31st, the last day of daylight saving time here in the U.S., and All Hallows' Eve. I'll be going out to celebrate later in costume. But first, let's bring in the Igor to my Frankenstein, the <laughs> always cleverly costumed Roscoe. A ghoulish welcome, Roscoe. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> so I was what, trying to think of something ghoulish to say. What are you going as, 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 as Halloween? I like your mask. Do you? Thank you. <laughs> it's a little frightening, isn't it? It's like that sound engineer we had in here one time who said, total stranger, who said to you, totally out of the blue, you have a face for radio. Uh, Do you remember her? Yes, yes. <laughs> what, a, what a mean thing to say. So sad she ended up in the trunk of that car. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got a single costume, but I can't decide what to go as. It's one costume. It's the same getup, but I, I, I can go one of two ways, depending on the hairstyle. I can either go as a bull shark or Carly Fury. <laughs> <laughs> Which do you think I should do? Boy, it'd be hard to tell the difference. I think Carly. I will say that if anybody watched the GOP presidential debate this past week, I think it was on Wednesday night, with those 10 people up there, Carly's hairstyle made her look sort of like the snout of a bull shark. Did you see it? It was this helmet head. I don't know what she's thinking. And, 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 and her face looked completely artificial. She looked like an avatar. I, 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 I didn't get the whole look in any way whatsoever. She completely lost me. And I have to say, I, she has received almost no press as the result of the latest debate. She did, she did herself no favors at that debate whatsoever. But did she even have a chance to talk? She had a few chances to talk. But first, I just wanted to give you a... Speaking of sharks... I usually give very depressing shark stories. People lose limbs, people get eaten, people get a chunk of their leg taken out. Well, here's actually a rather heartwarming Did a shark, did a shark bring a basket of food to a hungry family in San Bernardino <laughs> or something? <laughs> I hear you may be down in provisions for Halloween, so I brought you a bunch of a turkey. Who is it? Land shark. <laughs> Who is it? Food for the hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Eugene Finney. Eugene Finney owes his life to a shark. The 39-year-old was swimming with his daughter near Huntington Beach, California. Always a bad idea. When a massive, massive shark slammed into his back. Days later, Finney was having severe chest and back pains and rushed to a hospital where a CAT scan revealed internal bruising and a small cancerous tumor on his right kidney. The tumor was removed before the cancer spread to other parts of the body, and Finney is recovering well. Quote, if I could find this shark and give it a hug, I would. Wow, that's an amazing story. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That guy gets slammed into by a massive shark who doesn't bite him, doesn't eat him. Well, we talked about this. Sharks don't really like the taste of human beings. Mm -hmm. And and because of that, he went to the hospital and had CAT scan to see if there were internal injuries, and they found a, a, a cancerous tumor. That's the kind of story that I think I might tell at my next Bible study about the mystery of how God works. 
when's your next Bible study? Because I want to write this down. Um, it's going to be the second Wednesday in November. You're not confusing that with other study study groups you go to. No, you? I think I'm going to play in New York that night. Never, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> should go to something religious like I Hand should. to God. Yes, because that's closing soon. Well, getting back to Carly Fiorina, you know, she's fact-challenged, and she, she learned absolutely nothing from the Benghazi hearings, for instance. She was uh, quoted as saying on Good Morning America with host uh, George Stephanopoulos that she, she thought that Hillary did reasonably well, but that the hearings demonstrated that she won't be held accountable until we have a nominee in a general election debate who will hold her accountable. Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very astute of her. <laughs> On the debates, by the way, one of her big moments was towards the end where she looked straight at the camera and she said, hear me now. I know you're all thinking this. I will beat Hillary. I know you're all just dying to see me and Hillary debate. No, 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 <laughs> we're not. <laughs> well, Actually, no that, would, that would be something because... The emperor has no clothes, and Hillary Clinton, she would wipe the floor with her. I think Carly would have to go back to being called Carlton S. Fiorino. Carlton (laughs) S. Fiorino. She'd have to go into a witness protection program. Now, before She'll end up a scrub woman in Whiting, Indiana. (laughs) That's where our friend George from Midlothian has a summer home. Well, it's a trailer, but it's it's very nice. It's double wide. Double (laughs) wide. Kitchen, in, indoor plumbing. Indoor I think plumbing, it, indoor a nice, plumbing. nice view of the pond. And yes, some of those pink flamingos that we steps. gave him after after uh, That's right. He, he's got those uh, placed outside his uh, outside his trailer. Yes. They, they look lovely. I hope they make it through the winter. You know, before this uh, debate, and I haven't seen any polling numbers since the debate, we'll probably see some early part of next week. She had plummeted to just 4%. A staggering, that was a staggering 11-point decline in just a single month. Uh, And she's fallen 7% in a Wall Street Journal poll, um, good enough for only sixth place. Altogether, the ABC News Washington Post poll has her with just 3% of support. Voter affection seems centered on whomever is the loudest at the moment, which is why Donald Trump is usually getting the, the most press. I don't know what's up with this Carson guy, because I can barely hear him, even on TV. I was like, turn up the mic! He's, he's mumbling. Wow, yeah. I want to... Well, that, his that's, that's his eyelids of, are half closed. Yeah, that's one of the theories as to why he's doing well, is that he's sounds soft-spoken and unrattled, and he can say crazy things like, well, you know, the problem was... The, is that if more Jews in Germany had had guns, the Holocaust probably wouldn't have happened. And he says it slowly, and it sounds very reasonable, and you can't really hear that he's completely bat-s crazy. <laughs> he, he's a little crazy. Oh. At, any, at any rate, uh, you know, William A. Jacobson uh, at Legal Insurrection, which is a, a online uh, political blog, said of Carly, out of sight, out of mind... On Friday, Carly, uh, ever measured and unruffled in her responses, addressed the being out of sight in the form of not spending any advertising money. We are spending our money very carefully because we have to go the long haul. Why don't she spend a few dollars of her own, like Trump is, and take out some ads? I haven't seen anything. Buy an ad. Design a bumper sticker. What, What kind of excuse is this? This is ridiculous. 
She she should hold. Not, I, she should not squander any of her money on becoming president. Well, she... we'll see what happens when these polls come out after this debate. Because I think, as you predicted some weeks ago, my keys to the Carly segment is not long lived. No. <laughs> well, we'll have to shift to somebody else that we can cover. Speaking of politicians, some weeks ago uh, we we addressed a story that was breaking here in in Illinois on um, Dennis Hastert, the uh, former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. There wasn't much of an update for these long, long months while they negotiated things and talked about it, but this past Wednesday he appeared in court and he pled guilty to criminal misconduct and took his place as possibly the highest-ranking Illinois politician ever convicted, highest being... Uh, he was third in line for the third, president. He was third in line for the president. The sentencing won't be till February. The prosecution is asking for anywhere between zero and six months jail time, but the judge could impose, could impose up to five years and $250,000. However... This deal uh, might also uh, seal any information with federal prosecutors designed to keep secret the most embarrassing details of the alleged sexual misconduct uh, dating to Haster's days as a high school teacher. The whole thing centers around him taking out small portions of money from his bank account in order to hide from the feds large portions that got taken out. And he was using that money to pay off a certain individual A for possible past misconduct of sexual abuse, sexual misconduct uh, when he was a wrestling coach. It's very possible that he will get sentenced in February to maybe six months, let's say he gets sentenced to six months, and that nothing else will ever come out about this story. Now, I'm not sure that that's right. I, I, I don't know if that's justice you, you or it's... not. The motivation behind the alleged crimes is irrelevant, former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Kramer said. That's why the feds don't need to go into the details. All the feds wanted to go into details on was the money laundering. Well, laundering is a relative term. But they, they used this law that is usually reserved for pimps and, 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 and gang members and drug uh, smugglers um, in terms of where they put money and take money out in small amounts. They use this law to get him. Now, I, and I think there's a cleansing and a heightening of awareness that's a positive thing that we may be, we may be being denied in this situation because we may never find out who individual A is. We may never find out if the sexual misconduct charges were actually true, if he was paying off just because... He didn't ever want even the suspicion of these things to be true or if they're actually true and he was trying to cover them up all these years later. I think there's, there's really a very odd miscarriage of justice going on in terms well, of the public. Well, it's very disturbing. I mean, let's play it out. If this is true, Dennis Hastert, many years ago, was involved in sexual misconduct, allegedly, the rumors are, with a minor... He then becomes Speaker of the House, the third most powerful elected position in the United States of America. He's get, he gets caught trying to pay off hush money to someone who's not necessarily the victim. We have no idea who this is. And that's what he gets in trouble for. And he could get zero or no prison time. And 
Meanwhile, in the same week, the United States is still trying to bring Roman Polanski back to the United States <laughs> know, for a sex crime that. committed 30 or 40 uh, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Something doesn't smell right. Something, here. no, it's not right. And I can't believe I, it's mind boggling that the truth may never come out. Don't we deserve to know what really happened? I think so. See, especially since they've already given us kernels and seeds of facts about how they got to this point of him pleading guilty on Wednesday to these charges. We already know these things. It, it, it just doesn't seem right. There may, in fact, be, as you say, a statute of limitations on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it may come out at the sentencing that... Uh, Can it? Yeah, the prosecutors could bring up facts about why this money was taken out and what it was being used for. Again, they could be very, very circumspect and very, very blurry about the actual facts, but still, I think we're getting a... I think the public is getting a raw deal. I think we need to know. I I think we are, and I also think, can you imagine how heinous these crimes must be that Hazard's just saying... For the love of God, I'll, I'll just go to prison rather than have anyone possibly know what horrible thing I did. That's kind of the feel we're getting yeah. here. Yeah, and did I, did I tell you this? Maybe I mentioned this on our show, but it would have been six months ago. My sister, my older sister, lives in a small town near Yorkville. Yorkville. And, and I don't think she knew Dennis Hester, but my sister's husband was, a, was also an athletic coach in high school. He coached a number of different sports. And I said to my sister, wouldn't you think that people in Yorkville could figure this out because you would, you would suddenly say, hey, how did Joe down the street suddenly buy an 80-inch television and he has a, a <laughs> yacht parked in his front yard exactly. that he's putting on Lake Holiday? Exactly. That, that it would make, you know, somebody obviously got into a windfall of money. Did they hold on to it? Did they spend it? Did they, I, we, and my sister said, yeah, you're right. She was, wait a minute, I, I think I know who it might be. Oh, you know what? I gotta go. The buzzer's ringing. <laughs> it's right. What? 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 Call me back. <laughs> and then she hung up. Yes, and then she hung up. Well, maybe we need to call her again now that this plea is maybe, in and 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 see if we can't pump her for a yeah, little and, bit and more. And you also have to imagine that there are. Wouldn't you think there are reporters all over this? I mean, thinking, my God, if I crack the case, I'm going to be a famous reporter for the rest of my life. Possibly. I mean, there are lots of other stories going on around Chicago, and this story would be. What, what would it be? 40 years old? 35 years old? This goes back to the late 70s. Uh, so it's, that's, not, that's 30 or 40 years. Yeah, yeah, 30 or 40 years. So perhaps... Or mid-70s even. Perhaps the uh, reporters, um, the fine reporters here with the uh, Sun-Times and the Tribune and the Reader, perhaps they have other things to cover. <laughs> As I mentioned uh, right at the top of the broadcast, it's October 31st. It is Halloween here in Chicago and in Evanston. Throughout the broadcast today, I'm going to uh, I'm going to read something from Sam Apple, who teaches creative writing at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, he put together a list of possible Halloween costumes that you might want to try. One is called Cleanliness is Next to Godliness. Dress up as the Pope lather everyone on dance floor with enormous amounts of Purell. (laughs) 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 Or you could go as the lap of luxury. I know this will appeal to you, Roscoe. You could go as the lap of luxury, or booth one, I suppose. Tape fine cutlery and a bottle of expensive wine to your groin. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) 
Oh, here's a bonus idea. Tape hood in ornaments from expensive cars to your groin. <laughs> what are you? I'm the lap of I'm luxury. I'm the lap of luxury. Uh, there's, there's plenty more where that came from. We'll get to those. Somebody's, somebody's shuffling papers over here. Hey, stop shuffling papers. We're doing, trying to do a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize the mics were on. That's our, that's our Muppet intern in the background <laughs> shuffling papers. Speaking of holidays... Let me get your take on this. They're moving the Christmas tree from Daly Plaza to Millennium Park this year after 48 years in Daly Plaza next to the Picasso. Well, the Picasso hasn't been there for 48 years, but they're moving it. They've built a special platform and a plinth right at the foot of, what, Madison, I think, and they're going to put the giant Christmas tree there. What's your feeling about I'm that? I'm fine with that. Isn't isn't that a much prettier area of the city? I mean, Daly Plaza is just skyscrapers and cement, and there'll there'll be some pretty scenery behind, closer right. to the it'll lake. It'll be it'll be right next to the ice skating rink, which will attract a lot more visitors. Just feet from um, Cloudgate, which is known affectionately here as the Bean, you'll be able to see it. From the top of the Ferris wheel on Navy Pier, you'll be able to see it up and down Michigan Avenue, which will be very cool coming down oh, Michigan Avenue. Oh, that is. Uh, I, I think it's a grand idea. Uh, a lot of people are kind of upset because they don't like tradition, traditions to be changed. But you know what? From what I understand, the giant menorah and the nativity scene will still be in Daly Plaza. So if you, along with that German kinder market. Kinder, thing, yes. Yeah, so there's plenty of activity going on there. I think it's going to be cool, cool, cool. I think that's fantastic. And I, I think it's also worth noting, I've said this before, that Chicago at Christmas time is, is much more beautiful than New York City at Christmas time. They have the big tree in Rockefeller Center at Christmas time. But then they surround it with all of these ugly metal and partitions and barricades. Yeah, the barricades, like yeah. the police barricades. The police things, barricades, yeah. and it's and it's it's ugly. It doesn't have eye appeal. You heard about the uh, deal that the producers are going to do with Hamilton tickets, where they're going to make twenty thousand tickets available to school children in New York on Broadway. Yes, what do I, you think? That's I, I almost cried when I read that article. What a fantastic idea! This is for Wednesday matinees. Many of the, oh, I, I remember reading it. The fund will pay for some, different people are paying different parts of the full ticket price. The kids have to pay $10 out of their own pocket because they don't want to just give them tickets for free. They want, to, want them to realize that sometimes you have to pay money for things and they think that they'll, they'll get a better response and then they just say, oh, come for free. There was a tear-jerking story that, that a, a, so a woman told that she brought in an inner city high school student who had, you know, came from nothing, had no money to see Hamilton in which white characters are portrayed by a largely African-American Hispanic cast and that the girl was weeping after the show. And she said, you know, for the first time, I feel like an Amer I'm an American. And so I uh, just thrilling. I'm, I'm, I'm all choked. Yeah, up. I am too. Like you are, you're, <laughs> your, your eyes are all watery. I know. Oh I was goodness. moved. 
You were. You moved us all. And then we began weeping on the podcast. Yeah, it's uh, it's being um, underwritten by the Rockefeller Foundation, and it's going to take place in uh, between 2016 and 2017, as you say. Select performances, I think, mostly Wednesday afternoons, but they may do like a Saturday afternoon here or there. Uh, and uh, they plan to issue 20,000 tickets to students to see that show. I, it's It's tremendous. I've never heard anything like it. And I hope that it is something that other producers will take to heart. Although, when you have the giantest hit on Broadway... You can it, afford to take it yeah, to heart. Yeah, and it, ha- it has lots going for it. It's a musical. It has history behind it. It's a good learning experience. It's got hip-hop music associated music with it. Music the kids will like. Yeah, those kids, they yeah. love that music. Now, speaking of Broadway, a couple of shows opened this week that we had talked about on our last podcast, Mm -hmm. and I want to get back to you just as a quick follow-up on them. Let's start with The Humans, the Stephen Karam play that opened. This is the one where you sat down and Stephen Karam was a couple of seats next to you and he was going to be taking notes, and then you ran into him after the show and told him you liked it, and then you told him that you didn't really understand the ending. And he said, thank you. I appreciate that. So it opened. And you uh, did you read the reviews? I, I know nothing about theater. <laughs> I should just keep my mouth shut. I think Stephen Karam probably went into the bathroom and said, God, please, God, I want to be a successful playwright, but keep those loudmouth mamoos away from me. I am never, <laughs> I am never taking notes in the theater I'm never again. taking notes again, and I'm going to wear a blonde wig the next time I go to one of my plays so that people don't recognize me and feel the need to opine about my unsatisfactory ending. Yeah. When the New York Times said... We will probably never see a better drama this season. Yeah, or or for several seasons. You particularly were confused by the ending, and you just didn't get it. I just want to read a couple of words here from Christopher Isherwood's review in the New York Times. The fragility of human life and all it contains is a recurring theme, and it accelerates as the drama darkens. Literally. In addition to strange loud thuds from somewhere above, it sounds like the footsteps of an angry or indifferent god. The apartment grows dimmer, and you mentioned this, as one light after another mysteriously blinks out. Is this uh, to your recollection, yes, Roscoe? Yes. Yeah. By the end of Mr. Karam's haunting, beautifully realized play, quite possibly the finest we will see all season, as you said, the apartment has emptied. There's not a single human being left on a stage and suddenly plunged into total darkness as if a black hole had swallowed up the Blake family before the turkey has even had time to cool. Now, did that increase your understanding of having seen the play in real life? Did you feel not really? I mean, do you read that? And when when you read that, do you say, oh, now I understand. I, too, understand what the play was about. Well, I can't say that I haven't seen the play, but. I understand what they're saying about the ending and how the family just kind of disappears into blackness and becomes enveloped in the darkness with sounds, but no more dialogue. Well, they they don't become enveloped in darkness. They leave the stage, and then the stage becomes enveloped in darkness. And then a cell phone goes off, and no one answers it, and there's a shadow through a window. And, And I will say, I will defend this. When the play ended... The audience had no idea the show was over. We all sat there expecting one more beat. Now, as I said, this was only the fifth preview, and maybe they corrected that. Maybe they fixed whatever it was so you, so, so you knew. End of play. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe. Maybe. And, and something else I thought of is that the reviews did explain some of the things that the characters talk about. One of the characters talks about reoccurring nightmares that he, he was having. And so perhaps the end of the play has to do with those nightmares. And I think by the time he was talking, the, the actor was talking about his reoccurring nightmares, we're an hour and 30 minutes into the play. And I'm beginning to think, how much time do I have to get back to the hotel be- to grab my bag before I have to run to the airport? You know, I think I had stopped concentrating on the show. Not a good thing. Yeah, and just this is a hard, th- this is a hard thing about theater. When when you go, you have to be able to drop everything and concentrate on what they're saying. And and this is why I sometimes think that it's okay to have something explained twice, so that if I'm dozing off when they explain <laughs> that that the the actress in the seagull's brother is the man who's weeping at the table. And I miss the fact that the one, the one explanation, you know, this is the problem with Chekhov. You never understand how the characters know each other. Maybe there's one reference to how they know each other. And if you miss that one reference, you're at sea. Is she kissing her brother or her boyfriend right now? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think you should have stayed awake and paid a little bit more attention because these reviews across the board uh, have been there's, really there's quite say, and, 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 and the reviews hadn't even hit, had barely hit before it was announced that it would move to Broadway. Later in the show, when, when it becomes germane, I will talk about something else that happened to me this week, uh, which is um, a perfect explanation of why I just should never talk to people who I, whose plays I see or who I see perform. Just enjoy them and then walk away and do not engage. Another play you saw was Therese Rakin mm. with Kira Knightley. Those reviews came out. One quote from uh, a review I read was, she enters carrying, and this is Kira Knightley, she enters carrying a bowl of water and a heap of bad karma. <laughs> <laughs> That was clever. <laughs> they hear spooky creaking noises whenever they're in bed, which is either Camille's ghost or the plot. <laughs> creaking <laughs> noises. <laughs> this is another play that you uh, just didn't quite get well, the gist I, of. I, I didn't go into details because I didn't think it would be fair to badmouth a play that was still in previous and hadn't opened yet. When I saw the show, it was interesting and, and dramatic but there were times I went to laugh at what was happening on stage. You know, it's an old-fashioned... Is it a melodrama? Is it a gothic thriller? Uh, it's just on, on the precipice of being laughable and corny and ridiculous. And I thought they might be able to fix the tone so that you bought into what was happening on stage and it didn't cross the line into being a little laughable. And the reviewer said that he actually had to suppress giggles a few times. So, some people did laugh at various points when I don't think it was a laugh line. Right. I don't think those lines were punched up by Neil Simon. Yeah. So, uh, mm, mm, not so great. Although she she came off fairly all right. They say she's oh. a good actress in a difficult role in a, role in a difficult show that might have been uh, better directed. Uh, well, now, we went to a uh, play recently, not you and I, but myself and uh, our producer. We just went to Writer's Theater, one of our favorite Mm -hmm. theaters here in Glencoe, right up the road, uh, and saw a play called Marjorie Prime by Jordan Harrison. Now, this play has been around a little bit. It was done at uh, the Center Theater Group at the Mark Taper 
last year in Los Angeles. It was also done uh, in Cleveland. This play has the distinction. One of the reasons we went is because, and we've mentioned this on the program before, Writers Theater is building a beautiful new theater complex up there in Glencoe with a giant beautiful theater and a smaller theater and a black box space for experimental stuff. This theater does not open until February. And Originally, when the theater company was started, they performed exclusively in a tiny, tiny postage stamp-sized room at the Vernon Books on Vernon, the bookstore, and they continue to produce there. Well, this Marjorie Prime is going to be the very last play ever done at Books on Vernon. Now that they have a complex where they can do things in smaller and bigger spaces, it's not going to be there. Well, we went to see Marjorie Prime. It opened this week to fairly good reviews, at least in the Chicago Tribune. Chris Jones gave it a bit of a love letter. Here's my review. Marjorie Prime, I wouldn't waste my time. Really? Yeah. It's a slight play. It's a slight play with one idea. In fact, it's so slight a play, it might as well be a half-hour Twilight Zone episode. It's written in that kind of style. The, the writer, Jordan Harrison, and, and to be fair, there is some lovely writing in it, uh, is, a, is a writer for Orange is the New Black. And I don't know if this is his first play or not, but uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a one-idea play that really didn't go anywhere for me. There were some emotional moments, mostly because it deals a, a bit with aging and older and dying parents, which is very close to a current circumstance that uh, we're living through here. So that was emotional, but you know you can't you can't say that the play was emotional just because you had a visceral reaction to it because of something personal in your life going on. I I, I thought it was serviceably directed. It was beautifully acted. Marianne Thebus and uh, Kate Fry, Kate, Kate Fry uh, are in it, and uh, they do a bang up job with what they can. But again, I think it's a slight play, and I think Chris Jones got it wrong. Boy, I, I'm shocked because I, you had invited me and I wasn't able to come because of a work conflict. But I, I read Chris Jones's review and I thought, oh my gosh, I really missed something. He gave it four stars. He, and, and you knew that he was going to rave about Kate Fry and it took about nine paragraphs to get there and he finally said, Kate Fry is magnificent, you know. And she just won the Jeff Award for another show that you saw her in last year. Outside Mullingar. Wow. Yeah, she was good. Wow. She was quite good, actually. It wasn't about having sex with a robot or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no sex involved. Um, but there are actors playing non-humans. And as I said, it'd be a perfect Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. I'd, I'd watch it. I'd I, watch I also it read the description. I thought, this is the last play I want to see. Yeah. I don't care about stuff like this. But I enjoy going to anything. I, I, and, and it was a pleasure to be in the bookstore, and I'm sad to see it go. I really do think they're not going to be producing there ever again, and this will be the end of it. Anyway, that was, that's my thumbnail. Here's something else you could dress up as for Halloween. It's not too late, Roscoe. You could dress up as waiting for the other shoe to drop. Remove your shoes, tape one to the ceiling insecurely so that it falls right away. <laughs> tape the second shoe to the ceiling more securely and spend the entire party staring at it with a hopeful expression. <laughs> here's, uh, here's another one you could do. Uh, you could go as not playing with a full deck. Force partygoers to sit down for a friendly game of gin rummy. 
announce at the end of the game that the deck has only 51 cards. <laughs> <laughs> Something else you went to earlier this past week. You went to Davenport's, which is a cabaret club here, and saw the legendary, uh, sometimes wonderful Karen Mason. How was that experience? I did. It was a lot of fun. I hadn't seen Karen Mason in a number of years, and I, I knew we were going to talk about her today. I was trying to think, how do, how do you explain who Karen Mason is? Karen Mason is a singer, now a Broadway musical performer, who got her start in Chicago nearly 40 years ago at a time when there were still places for cabaret singers to sing in Chicago. Now, now there's only Davenport's. There is nowhere else to go to listen to. People sing from the Great American Songbook. And she was written up in the Tribune all of the time, became a local favorite. She's from Arlington Heights. You know, her, her friends and family and people she went to high school with always showed up at her concerts. Some years ago, she went to New York. She's recorded a number of albums, uh, but never been on television, never had a, a num- never had a record that got airplay. She's just a good singer who isn't famous, and if you didn't grow up in Chicago reading about her in the Tribune, you wouldn't know who she is, unless maybe you, for years she was in Mamma Mia on Broadway, not the lead, but one of the friends of the mothers, so, you know, the third woman on from the left in the lavender pantsuit is Karen Mason. Right, one exactly. Of, one right. of her other, she was in And the World Goes Round, which was the Candor and Ebb review that was very successful. Please don't mention Candor and Ebb reviews. Oh, can we get to that <laughs> no. in the broadcast? We already, we've already, we've already well covered that, I think. Karen Mason is in fine voice. It was a lovely evening listening to her. And I I enjoyed her so much. And and I've seen her just a million times over the years. And I I know I've spoken to her in the past. I hadn't spoken to her in many years. And and as I'd mentioned, I'd managed a club where she sang. But that's some 25 years ago. Well, I had two very specific memories of Karen Mason. Well, I was just out of college, and she she walked into a bar with her and a company of us where they were known on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, and the disc jockey announced that she had just learned some new songs and wanted to do a run of her cabaret act uh, just before she opened. So, you know, if we all wanted to stay, Karen Mason would sing for us, and there was no cover. And there weren't enough seats in the bar, so everyone sat down on the dance floor. And she did 45 minutes of music, and we all just sat on the dance floor, and it was terrific and fun and a once-in-a-lifetime event. And then many years later, I saw her in the, in the Royal George Theater. There's a space in the back that's smaller with a little bar that's where Forever Plaid yes, played sure, forever. Of course. And once upon a time, that was a little cabaret room. And Karen Mason did uh, what was billed as an acoustical performance where she performed without a microphone because she has a big voice and it was a small room. Piano, Karen Mason, no microphone. At one point, a woman who'd had a few cocktails got up to use the restroom and when she returned, she thought it would be a good idea to walk on stage and dance (laughs) alongside Karen Mason. Well, Karen Mason was a little surprised when this woman stumbled onto the stage and began to dance along with her. And Karen Mason started to dance with her, and then she danced her back to her table and shoved her back in her seat. (laughs) And it was a hilarious moment because Karen handled it so, you know, instead of saying, get off my stage, she, she made fun of it, she acknowledged the woman, which is what the woman wanted, got, drew attention to her, and then got her off the stage. Yeah, she's a real pro, and she's, she's completely comfortable on a cabaret stage like that. Well, what about this Davenport well, experience? Oh, oh, so at the end of the show, 
which is lovely. She did a long set. She was with another musician who was performing some of his original music. So at the, at the end of the evening, 90-minute set, certainly got my money's worth, lovely Saturday evening, I went up to her and said, Karen? And she goes, yes. And I said, I, I, I haven't spoken to you in a long time. I said, I was the manager at George's when, when you were there. And she goes, oh, yes. And I said, you know, I had a couple of great memories of you. And I told her the stories that I've just repeated here. She looked at me blankly and she said, I have no memory of either of those (laughs) two events. I just don't remember. And I'm going to get on a seven o'clock plane. Lovely talking to you. Well, this is this is something that's remarkable about you, Roscoe. You have an uncanny ability to remember events like that that happened throughout your life that may not have involved you other than as a casual observer, but there you recite them as if they happened yesterday and that everybody would know when they happened and exactly where they were when they happened, like, you know, like the Kennedy assassination. It's, it's uncanny the way you can put a story together and make it sound like everybody knows this story. It's been told and told and I'm going to tell it now. Except there you go. Karen Mason doesn't remember well, actually being the protagonist in this story. Well, well, and it must be that I remembered them because they were, they were important memories to me. And they were funny and they were interesting. And I played them over in my head a number of times. And apparently they weren't important to her because she'd never, she hadn't, even, hadn't thought about them since they happened. And maybe if you're a cabaret singer for 40 years, you have lots of experiences where drunk people get up on stage and do something disruptive, and this just didn't stand out from any of the other dozens of times this had happened. Well, they're important to me, and they're certainly important to our listeners. So I, for one, am greatly appreciative that you have that kind of memory. And Damn it, that's why you're the sidekick here. That's why. Roscoe, the lovable sidekick. That's why. With his pal Spinner in Paddlefoot. Indeed. Uh, Have you heard that Funny Girl is going to land in the West End? You know, they're doing a production. I'm I'm gobsmacked. Are you No, I have not heard this. You remember some months ago when um, I interviewed Paul Gemignani, who was Stephen Sondheim's longtime musical director. One of the things he said when I asked him, are there any shows, and it would be very hard to find any, are there any shows that you've never done that you always wanted to do? And his answer unequivocally right off the bat was, Funny Girl, I love Julie Stein, I'd love to do it. Well, Funny Girl is going to be done by the Manier Chocolate Factory in London, and they've announced that its revival, uh, which broke the theater's box office records by selling out in 90 minutes, even before it opened, will transfer to the Savoy Theater in the West End uh, for, for April, uh, for 12 weeks, April 2016. This production stars uh, Olivier winner Sheridan Smith. She won the Olivier, she's won three Olivier Awards. Wait, one for what's her name? Sheridan Smith. She's won three Olivier's for Into the Woods, Legally Blonde, and Little Shop of Horrors. Unknown, really, to American audiences, but she's got the part. And it's the first major London revival of the musical, which had its premiere on Broadway in 64, uh, as we all know, but has not been produced there or in London since. That's just unbelievable that it hasn't been produced. You know, they planned a revival in 2011 on Broadway, which was to have starred 
Lauren Ambrose, remember her? Yeah. And uh, directed by Bartlett Schur, one of your favorites. Mm -hmm. But it was scrapped after some of the producers pulled out. I can't remember why they pulled out. Perhaps they didn't think that she was up to snuff. I forget what that whole story was all about. Oh, I think it was a a busy season Mm. on Broadway, and there was a lot of competition, and they thought they just can't open a $10 million musical in this environment. Yeah, this funny girl is going to be directed by Michael Mayer who I worked with on Angels in America here in Chicago many, many years ago, and whose Broadway credits include American Idiot and Spring Awakening, not the current Spring Awakening, um, but the original Spring Awakening. So how exciting is that? I have to say, once you told me he was going to direct it, I got not so excited. Did you see Spring Awakening? I did not. Uh, It was sort of a lot of chair dancing. Instead of, instead of real choreography, there's a lot of kids sitting in chairs doing funny things where they, you know, bend up and down and hop up and down in their seats. It's one of my least favorite musicals in the history of the planet. Hmm. Something else you could go to Halloween party tonight as, if you're still wondering about ideas, um, you could go as a wild goose chase. And here's how you do it. You arrive with a goose... You release the goose. <laughs> <laughs> and then you chase the goose. <laughs> or, or, or you could go as out of the frying pan and into the fire. Here's how you do that. You sit in a large frying pan throughout <laughs> most of the party. <laughs> and when the moment is right, only when the moment is right, you stand up, you sprint across the room, and you dive headfirst into the fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> and people will go... Who were you supposed to be? And you go, I'm, I'm out, out of the, the frying pan and, and into, into the, the fire. fire. Perfect. I, I don't want to belabor this. Can I go back to Funny Girl for a second? You may. Can you think of any other show like Funny Girl done to great acclaim originally and then never, ever, ever produced again because it was so tied to its star? And its star, of course, was Barbara Streisand. I, I'm having a hard time thinking of one, really. There's Fiddler, but that's been redone. And it's being redone uh, this week, this yeah, year. Yeah, I think I think the Fiddler's been done on Broadway something like eight times. There yeah. have been five New York productions of Gypsy since yeah. 1959. Yeah. So Funny Girl opened five years later. It's never been yeah. done again. Meanwhile, Gypsy's been revived five times. Ballroom. <laughs> ballroom is not Funny Girl. <laughs> no, I know. Did you see Ballroom? I I did. I did. I was living in New York at the time. I actually had a, I have a keychain, a ballroom <gasps> keychain someplace really? that I that I picked up somewhere along the line. You've heard that Second City had gotten their offices burned down right. because of a some sort of fire in the adobo grill at the, yes. <laughs> on the ground floor. Did you hear that uh, they have now taken offices in the Tribune Tower for the next year and a half or so? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's the second city should be in the most beautiful building. Isn't in that Chicago. awesome? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're not moving the theaters there. You can't go see improv at the Tribune Tower, but uh, the theaters are still fine where they are on North Avenue. But I was happy to hear that. Yeah. About and wasn't the that that city building people. just sold, the Tribune Tower? I believe so. And there's rumors they might put condos there. Wouldn't that be thrilling to live? Where do you live? I live in the Tribune Tower. That would be very cool. Can <laughs> I live, you imagine I live living up near the top of the spire? No, That'd that would be, be terrific. I want to give a little shout out here to something that a friend of ours went to see. I have not seen it, but I'm interested in seeing it. This is called The Therapy Players. It is Chicago's premier all psychotherapist comedy improv troupe. Oh Lord, really? It's, it's it's five it's five psychotherapists. I think they're all women, and they get together in small spaces and they do 
like a Second City improv thing where they, you know, ask for things to be shouted out by the audience. <laughs> Will they bring people up on stage and psychoanalyze them? I believe they bring people up on stage and make them part of the whole process. The uh, next performance is going to be on Saturday, November 21st at the Open Door Repertory Company um, on South Ridgeland in Oak Park. That's at 8 p.m. And uh, Sunday, January 31st, well, that's a long time from now, in, uh, at the Chicago Loop Sports Bar and Grill in Streamwood. If you're interested in learning, in learning more about these people, go to www.therapyplayers.com. That's therapyplayers.com. <laughs> and here's their tagline. Laughs even your insurance company can't deny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's clever. <laughs> Before we get to our kiss of death, Roscoe... Um, are we that far along? We are very far along. Holy before, cow. Before we get to our kiss of death, I wanted to just give a moment of recognition to Maureen O'Hara. Mm. She's not going to be our kiss of death primary person because she's just way too famous. Uh, did you ever get the opportunity to meet Maureen O'Hara or see her at anything in person? <sighs> No, but I, I have an anecdote about it. Very well. A friend of mine was working on a DVD of The Quiet Man, and they were doing bonus materials and uh, interviews with, with, you know, Maureen O'Hara had to be the only surviving cast member. You know, but Quiet Man is 1952, I believe. They talked to Maureen O'Hara, who's living in Ireland, and explained what they were doing, and they said they want to capture her thoughts on The Quiet Man all these years later. She said, that'll be great. And then they flew to Ireland with their camera crew, and she refused to meet them. <laughs> Why? <laughs> she, had no, I, she had no memory of having told them they could come <laughs> or that she would talk to them. And my friend, the producer, knew someone who knew her and called her and said, oh, for Christ's sakes, Maureen, do the interview. Why cause these people trouble? And she goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and then she went ahead and filmed the interview. Brilliant. Well, Maureen O'Hara, known for her screen pairings with John Wayne in the films of John Ford, and one of the last A-list survivors of Hollywood's golden age. Would you agree with that? One of the last A-list survivors? Well, sh sure. I yeah. mean, who, there's no one else left but Olivia de Havilland. Yeah. But we have to get this in. Baby Peggy is 97. 97. But she precedes that era. Indeed, by, yes. yes. Decades. De decades. She was a star, well, as a child. So right, in the, unlike, in the 20s. Yes, unlike Maureen O'Hara. Uh, she passed away on Saturday, last Saturday, uh, at her home in Boise, Idaho, um, and at, at 95. The gorgeous Irish actress was often described as fiery and was nicknamed Big Red. I never heard her called Big Red, but both because of her signature red hair and a certain temperamental streak in her characters, exemplified by, as we mentioned, Mary Kay Danaher in the 1952 Ford classic, The Quiet Man. Here's an interesting fact. Upon seeing her beautiful red hair and green eyes, RKO execs chose to make 1945's The Spanish Main in technicolor instead of black and white. Oh. It's been said that Maureen O'Hara is somewhat responsible for making technicolor as popular as it was because she had the perfect features for it, especially the hair and eyes. Yeah. 
God bless Maureen O'Hara. Travel safe. We will. I, we I will think miss you would have you. liked her if you'd met her a number of years ago. I think I might she have. And, she and Carly Fiorino would uh, like, fight for your attention. I believe she could have been Mrs. Zabinski number four, or she something could have like been. that, or one and a half, or something. Who knows? I'm, that'll go over when your wife hears that. I mean, four like before one, so you know, or uh, maybe. Uh, you know, uh, I see. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to marry a 95 year old woman. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Our kiss of death segment today, however, officially is this. Marty Ingalls died at 79. Marty Ingalls, an actor and comedian whose off-screen antics were long deemed outrageous, even by Hollywood's lofty standards, died in Tarzana, California. His death was announced by his wife, the actress Shirley Jones. It all comes back to Carousel, doesn't it? It all comes back to Carousel. In a statement, she said, He often drove me crazy, but there's not a day I won't miss him and love him to my core. The precise ways in which Mr. Ingalls deranged Ms. Jones, who was known for her demure middle American screen persona can be gleaned from his activities over many, many decades. Mr. Ingalls, who began his professional life as a talking peanut and was later a booker of celebrities on television commercials, a frequent TV guest star, and a voiceover artist whose credits included Pac-Man in the animated series in the 1980s, was by all accounts highly voluble, genially combustible, energetically litigious, and unmistakably larger than life. Who do you think wrote this obituary? Not, not, not Marguerite Fox. Indeed. Oh. There was the time, for instance, that Mr. Jones arrived home to find Mr. Ingalls dancing on the lawn with her Oscar, awarded in 1961 for her role opposite Burt Lancaster in Elmer Gantry, accompanied by hired mariachi musicians. There was the time Mr. Ingalls moved into a bank to live, and there were various other times he appeared in court, for Mr. Ingalls always seemed to be suing someone, and someone always seemed to be suing him. Uh, A curious incident, for instance, involving actress June Allison and adult diapers. I'll get to that in just a minute. Holy cow. There was the time that he tried to walk the red carpet at the Emmys, accompanied by a life-size cardboard cutout of Shirley Jones. (laughs) who was then out of the country, and he was denied uh, admission, but the two-dimensional Ms. Jones was consigned to a closet for the duration of the ceremony. There were also darker times as when Mr. Ingalls, then an up-and-coming comic, had a paralyzing anxiety attack while performing on The Tonight Show, and that more or less ended his stand-up career. There were the struggles with panic, agoraphobia, and self-doubt that might well have had him, quote, living at the Betty Ford Clinic in the Jewish and depressed room. (laughs) He is quoted as saying waggishly. I always say creativity comes out of pain. Shirley doesn't believe that because she has no pain, no anxiety. I live with it. It's my life. My dream is for my wife, Shirley, to have an anxiety attack and pass out. Well, his parents wanted him to be a dentist. Um, and he pursued a string of jobs. One had Mr. Ingalls dressed as an immense nut, handing out planter's peanuts in Times Square, but he fell victim to his own volubility, for while a talking peanut is one thing, a prolix peanut is quite another. A prolix? Prolix means overly talkative. <laughs> Did you have to look that up? You no, knew that? Wow. But 
and I don't think Marguerite Fox had to look that up either. No. She just she just pulls it out of her pencil box. She's just You'll have to write her a fan things. note. Write her. I, I very frequently well, you, you have her email. Yeah, now. I very frequently write her and 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 uh, congratulate her on a well well written notice. Mr. Ingalls later joined the army where his mobile face was spotted by a talent scout for the TV quiz show named that tune. So appearing on the show, he won several thousand dollars and became known for his humorous repartee. After small parts on the Phil Silver Show, The Astronauts, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and other programs, Mr. Ingalls landed I'm Dickens, He's Fenster. Now, that was a show broadcast on ABC during the 1962-63 season. Um, co-starring, do you know who co-starred with him there? John Aston. Oh, yes. Yeah. Though the show drew critical praise, the network canceled it after 32 episodes. In the 70s, he founded Ingalls, Inc., a Hollywood agency that matched celebrities like Cary Grant and John Wayne with advertisers. In the early 21st century, while between homes, he lived for a time in a defunct branch of the Federal City Bank of Los Angeles. He had originally rented storage space in the building for his abundant belongings, but wound up spending so much time there that he installed a couch, a refrigerator, a microwave, and eventually himself. Every so often, a would-be customer would knock on the door. <laughs> I'm thinking of putting a sign out in front, Mr. Ingalls told USA Today at the time. Deposits only. In 1993, Mr. Ingalls agreed to perform 120 hours of community service to settle a suit by June Allison, a former client whom Mr. Ingalls had accused of failing to pay him his commission after he placed her in a commercial for the Depends brand of adult diapers. Ms. Allison, who denied owing the money, contended that in seeking it, Mr. Ingalls had harassed her by telephoning her 138 times in the space of eight hours. <laughs> uh, from even this adversity, Mr. Ingalls made comic hay. He fulfilled his community service by working in a Los Angeles area nursing home where he entertained the residents. He invited Ms. Allison to join him there. It would be the perfect truce, Mr. Ingalls told United Press International in 1993. And what better thing for Depends? <laughs> <laughs> Marty Ingalls, actor and comedian and a husband, longtime husband of Shirley Jones, uh, dead at 79. And of course, I met Marty Ingalls two years ago. Get out. Yes, he was at Cinecon. Do you remember this, the year that they honored Shirley Jones? And it was something they hadn't done, where instead of honoring four different people, they said, we'll just get one big star and honor her. And it was Shirley Jones. And I was helping do publicity for Cinecon. And I called someone at a major newspaper in Los Angeles, which I won't name. And the woman said, it sounds interesting, but have you, if you have Shirley Jones there, you're going to have to deal with her husband. And he's the most <laughs> difficult man in the world. So good luck to you with that. Awesome. And it turned out that some, that whoever the liaison was with Cinecon had known Marty Ingalls for years. And there was no trouble. But I, I will show you a photograph after we finish recording that Marty Ingalls was so eager to stay in the background during a Shirley Jones appearance. He was wheelchair-bound by then, and he wore, wore a large top hat. And tucked into the ribbon on his top hat was a giant piece of white cardboard on which he had written, I'm the husband. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been, I can't believe that I'm Dickens, he's Fenster, was on in 1962 to 63, because I remember that show. Dude. I watched that as a small child. They played plumbers or something. 
But of course, he had a canned line. I said, I said, oh, I'm, I'm so thrilled to meet you. I said, I used to watch I'm Dickens, He's Fenster. And his canned line was, ah, you're the one. Oh, they were, they were sort of jovial, wisecracking carpenters. Carpenters. They worked on people's apartments and houses. And, and this has been known. And Shirley Jones was, was basically there because she had just published her autobiography. So one of the, one of the in, enticements to coming to Cinecon is you can sell some more books. And as you know, she'd been married to Jack Cassidy for many, many years and never really fell out of love with him. And I think the story is they, they were thinking of getting back together or they might have gotten back together. And he fell asleep with a cigarette and burned to death, burned his house down, and he died in the fire. And she never quite cut over Jack it. Cassidy? Jack Cassidy. But she never, she got up to speak and she spoke for some length. And she said, you know, I love Marty. I love my husband. He knows all this. But I never fell out of luck with Jack Cassidy. And then she went on and on and on to talk about her Jack Cassidy, who had been dead for 30 years by then. And I was Marty Ingalls. I would have had some, some issues with this, I think. But, but I also know that, that this had just been the reality of their marriage for years. He knew that, that she really loved an, another man um, maybe more than she loved him. So it was a, an odd thing, but I never heard about the June Allison. <laughs> I, I think I, 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 I vaguely remember it making some headlines she was a huge spokesperson for Depends yes, for years yes. and years. In fact, that's how we all know about Depends from June Allison. Right, and probably how a whole generation even knows who that June Allison existed. Because that would have been 30 years after her heyday. Exactly. Well, I wish I had some Depends on right now because this has gone a little bit long. And boy, do I have to use the little boy's room. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one more uh, idea, however, for a Halloween costume before we go. Uh, you could go as the full story. Consume enormous amounts of food throughout the evening. Occasionally pause to read aloud from the Paris Review. (laughs) 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 And with that said, Roscoe, it's been a great podcast. I enjoy always being with you. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you enjoyed our podcast today. And join us again on... Booth One. Take care, everyone.